Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you with us today, and thank you for making us your church home for an hour. Appreciate it. We're going to continue and end our series today on grace. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 11. The title of the message is Grace, the Supply for Becoming and Doing. Grace, the Supply for Becoming and Doing. Paul is writing, and he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Verse 9. For I am the least of all the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Verse 11. Whether then it was, it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. Lord, help us as we study. Two things in this passage I want to highlight. One, our identity, and the other, our work, our labor. Paul is doing what he can to the church at Corinth to help them understand how the progress of the gospel worked through the government of those that God appointed to run the church, meaning the disciples. How Jesus and the resurrection progressed in, in, in terms of revelation that other people began to see and then how Paul saw then when Jesus appeared to him was the last of the apostles to receive the kind of inspiration that called him into the ministry. Saul then, Paul, received a kind of a double portion of grace meaning he was not only saved at that time but he was called at the exact same time. Most people don't get that. They get saved and they're happy and their calling comes later. It was all a, a, a package deal with Saul. He was on the way to Damascus. And he was, he was going to persecute the church. He wasn't trying to fellowship with them. He was a man that believed that the church ought to not exist and that it was antithetical to everything that was Jewish. And so he was trying to stamp it out. He had been the one who had had been the authority during the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. He was a deacon, and he was delivering food to people, two-piece meals. He was the pizza delivery guy, if you will. And he recognized that people had ministry needs as he was delivering food. People started to get healed. Blind eyes were opened. The gospel was preached. The religious leaders found out about it. They said, are you doing these things in the name of Jesus? He said, oh, absolutely. Gave them a good history lesson in Acts chapter 7 as to how these things came about, that this wasn't a brand new idea, that God had, had thought about it from the beginning. And the religious leaders hated Stephen so much that they stoned him. And that was the beginning of persecution in the church with respect to what it looked like to give your life 
and Saul was the one at whom the people who threw the stones at Stephen to kill him, Saul was the one at, at whom they laid their clothes, their cloaks, so that they could do their, finish their execution. And that began the persecution of the church through the hands of Saul. We don't know how many other people he witnessed uh, die or had a hand in killing. If Stephen was it, that would have been enough. But I imagine during his Christian life, Saul, who became Paul, was plagued with the idea, what have I done? I should not be doing what I'm doing. I'm the worst candidate possible for this job. Thus he says, a man untimely born. I imagine he thought, boy, if I'd just been born maybe a decade later, I could have heard the message of the gospel without having gone through all this other stuff of the Pharisees and been, been trained and steeped in my, my, my Hebraic traditions and religion. If, 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 if things had happened differently, if I was just born at a different time, but everything seemed to work to where I was untimely born. I came into my understanding of what full Judaism ought to look like according to the tradition of the fathers that were teaching me and those that I learned in the Old Testament. And that was, that was against everything that I saw that Jesus was bringing. Now, we have no record that Paul, uh, Paul ever talked to Jesus. At least in Scripture, we don't. We have one quote that he mentions that Jesus said that is not found in the Gospels. It is better to give than to receive. The only quote. So you sit there and say, well, where do you hear that? Because it's a quote. He said, as Jesus said, better to give and receive. Hmm. Interesting. Now, the concept was ministered by Jesus, but he's the one who, who coined the phrase as a result of quoting it from Christ. And we know that, that Paul was probably about three years younger than Christ, maybe four, um, which allowed him the privilege of being a contemporary. So every time that Jesus came into the city for a feast, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Passover, Feast of Pentecost, he had to stay an entire week, and those were moments where he would teach at Jerusalem. Most of his ministry was done in the north region of Israel called Galilee. But he would come down south for the feast because every young man, every man was required to. Three times a year he had to come. Um, and Jesus taught publicly. So I think it would be historically naive to believe that Saul, who became Paul, wouldn't have heard Jesus preach in Jerusalem, considering that he was a part of the religious elite trying to judge who was right and who was wrong, what needed to be stamped out, because Saul had to be at these feasts as well. And when it says that the Pharisees were against what Jesus was teaching, that had to include Saul at some level. Maybe he was not the lead, and that not until he came into the age of 30, 32, 33, but he was surely a part of the decision-making process, if not the onlooking process, to determine how things ought to go for his people. So things about what Paul says when he says, I'm timely born, it's almost as if he says, I wish I had not been in the environment that steeped me against what I was listening to. I couldn't hear well. And at some level, don't, don't we all at some point, although some of us leave it quicker than others and that's good, don't we all at some point kind of wish that we had been in a different set of circumstances? If I had been in this person's circumstances, if I had been born here, if I had been born there in that time, in this time, 
everybody looks at their existence as being one that is deficient. I just don't have enough of this. I don't have enough of that. I wish I had had this. And this was what Paul was saying. I was untimely born. I wish I didn't have to go through what I went through. But I did it. And I can't erase it. It is a part of me. There's a common idea amongst much of the famous populace that you, you shouldn't have any regrets in your life. I could not disagree more. I got a lot of regrets. To have no regrets either says this, you don't care about what you did wrong or you didn't do anything wrong. One of the two. Both are wrong. And you need to regret what you're saying right now. What do you mean you don't have any regrets? I got dozens upon, I can't count all the reasons for which I need to have regret. But it doesn't mean that I make those bad decisions and all the junk that happened back there determine my future. I just choose not to ignore it, but I choose to deal with it. And in dealing with it, I bring it to the cross on a regular basis. That allows me to understand what I was, I am no more, and I needed help. I am not my own savior. I can't fix myself. I can't just ignore it and, and, and say, well, it, 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 it really doesn't matter that, but it does matter. It matters how you deal with your past. Paul here knew what his past was, and he regretted it deeply, saying, I'm, I'm not even fit to be called an apostle. I'm the least of all of them. Making the case for what he's about to say next. That only by the grace of God am I. I am what I am by the grace of God. Nothing about my past would ever think that it would lead a pathway to what I'm doing now. Only the grace of God. Now you all have only known me as pastor. But the people with whom I grew up, <laughs> they knew me as somebody else. And my sister, most prominently, only the grace of God. <laughs> Identity is reformed as we get to know what God intended with our lives when he talked about sending Jesus for our benefit. Identity gets to be formed. And the only way you can really form your identity according to the will of God is to put everything that you've done in the past in the grave. You gotta die. You can't let a little bit of you bleed into the new you. The old you really has to die. You can't even let a little bit of the good part of you that you like the most bleed into the new you. Because the new you that God wants to make is so much better than whatever you call good. So much better. And the danger is that you will settle for the old good rather than the new great. You won't ever enlarge your mind to think something could be better. And you'll think, well, that wasn't bad. No, but it wasn't great. And why do you want to stay in the environment of just mediocrity? Let's go for God's best. Identity needs to be completely transformed. It's not just a metamorphosis where, 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 where kind of you slide into something. 
It is a, tr- a complete transformation. And let me re- restate that. I use the term metamorphosis wrong in that it almost looks like it's an os- osmotic process whereby you just kind of bleed into something else. Metamorphosis actually is the word that we have taken from the Greek where it says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's metamorpho where you are actually changed from something that you were not into something that you could not have become had you not done what you did to become it. It has nothing to do with your efforts. It has everything to do with your surrender. And the metamorphosis process is one that is is analogous to exactly what a caterpillar looks like when it becomes a butterfly. If you had not been in second grade and been through the experiment in the aquarium where they bring in branches with leaves and put the monarch butterfly on the branch and all of a sudden, two weeks later, it comes out of this chrysalis and becomes something like you never thought it would be when you saw the caterpillar. It's not like the caterpillar grows wings. The caterpillar has, a, a caterpillar has somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 legs. By the time it becomes a butterfly, it has six. Where'd the legs go? Where'd the legs go? It has wings. It didn't have wings. It used to scoot around like this. And now it does this. There's nothing about the butterfly that looks anything like the caterpillar. That's what God thinks about when he thinks about transforming you. It's not just about adding a couple of wings and hoping you get off the landing pad. It's about a complete transformation. Complete. You don't just take your old life and try to refurbish it. The old house is condemned. You raise it. R-A-Z-E. Not R-A-I-S-E. You raise it. Tear it down and let God start with a new foundation and build something else. This might seem a little little aggressive to those of you who have allowed a little bit of truth here and a little bit of truth here to be added to your whole life, which has been a lie. And you are a little bit better than you were, but you aren't anything as to where you should be. You're not what God wants yet. And none of us are. We are all a work in progress. For most of the people who call themselves a work in progress aren't working very hard. (laughs) They're justifying how messed up they are by saying, you know, I'm with God. I'm just a work in progress. You have to accept me. Well, so am I. I'm a work in progress. But I'm working every day to progress. I'm not just sitting around saying, God, okay, you know what you got. Hope you can work with it. I am working it every day and there's nothing about me that could ever be confused with perfection. But I am trying to be as consistent as I possibly can from what I read in the scripture, putting it in my heart and living it every day. I'm trying really, really hard. Anybody who does that, I will call you a work in progress. Anybody who doesn't, I'm not quite sure you're progressing at all. You're a piece of work. That was, was that mean? Do I, do I need to repent of that one? Uh, it fit. You know, I, you know, in your mind, you think, should I say that? Yeah, I'm going to say that. I'm going to say that. <laughs> Identity is formed by God, not by you. Not by you. And I, I, I promise you, I mean, Paul thought about his past. It had to be almost every day. Because at the end of his life, when he's writing to, to Timothy... He says, I'm the greatest of all the sinners. This was the most, arguably, the most righteous man on the planet. 
in terms of deeds. Not to mention the fact that God made him righteous. We can't find one thing he did wrong after he got right with God. Not one thing in Scripture he did wrong. I know he did, but we can't find it in Scripture. You are hard-pressed to find anybody more right, and yet at the end of his life, he said, I'm the greatest. I'm I'm the greatest of, of anybody who's ever sinned. He was thinking about what he did, but as he thought about what he did, it seems that he always applied the cross of Christ, and this is the remedy, y'all. Remedy is not just sitting on a psychoanalytics couch, some, some kind of psychiatrist's couch, and letting him begin or she to help you deal and cope with your issues. If you need counseling like that, get it. But if you do not apply the cross of Christ and the blood of Jesus to your past, you will always be dealing with your past in the present. It will never go away. And every time Paul began to deal with his past, he realized the grace of God fixed it. Here he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I shouldn't be doing this. But look at what the grace of God did. And we are to be those who are trophies of his grace to the world. Not as a result of things that we've done that somehow we're awarding ourselves. Pat on the back. Good job, Brett. No, we realize what we cannot be. And the only way we are the way we are is by the grace of Almighty God. We deserve so much worse. And Paul is saying, I am what I am. He doesn't say yet, I do what I do. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. The cross of Christ fixes everything. Everything. It is not a one-time application though it is for salvation. It is not a one-time application for healing. We need to apply it regularly. Whenever that, that old thought comes to your brain about what you did and the enemy begins to confuse you as to whether God has really forgiven you and you feel condemnation rolling up in your soul and you start feeling bad about what you did, that's where you need to run to the cross in a hurry. I say, God, I know you've forgiven me. Heal me. Help, help my soul to begin to think right about my past because I hurt so many people. I don't want to deal with this today. I don't want to deal with it tomorrow. But every time the enemy comes to me, he uses this as a weak point to try to rob me of my confidence. And when my confidence is stolen, I lose my faith in what you've done. I will not let that happen today. I run to the cross. I let the blood of Christ cover me so that my sin I know is forgiven. And I know what you've done as a result of the cross beyond just forgiveness. This redemption is beautiful and it would be enough. Oh, it would be enough to be redeemed is great. For God to forgive me of everything I've done is amazing. I don't deserve it. I don't know why he does it save he loves me. And love and grace make no sense at all. Listen, when you love somebody the way God loves you, it will make no sense. Everybody will say, why? Why are you treating that person so nice? Do you know what, do you remember what they did to you? To love like God loves you makes no sense. Because we were the greatest offenders and the ones deserving of the most punishment. And he chased us down with his love. Paul understood that. There's no reason I should be loved like God, loved by God like this. There's there's no reason. It it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But he forgave me for everything I've done. And, And 
it's, it's, not, like, it's not like afterwards he, he got the good end of the deal. I mean, he forgave me, and, and then he got me. He, he bought me. He forgave me not just because he said, I forgive you. He actually paid for me by paying all the penalty on the cross for my sin by dying. He died for me because he wanted me that bad. He didn't just want to forgive me. He wanted me. He bought me back from death. And it's not like God got the, the, the long end of the stick on the deal. I, I mean, think about it. We get him. He gets us. <laughs> Where's the value? Where's the value? Except that he places it on us and that we are made in his image. That's it. That's it. That's it. And, and, and this, even though it may not encourage those of you who believe that you really got to work in order to be approved. I'll say it this way. You got to work to be accepted. Please understand, you do not. And therefore, all the work that you do now is devalued with respect to what it means to be saved and accepted by God. And it should be, because nothing you can do can help you get saved. Nothing you can do can help you be accepted. Nothing. When you think about, and, and I'm, I'm going to destroy this idea if I can in your mind. When you think about your best effort, your most fruitful work, in order to impress God, it's got to be on the level of like, like be. Sun, do this for the earth and the universe. Uh, moon, do that. Seas, let's bring land up out of you. When you do works like that, he might be impressed. <laughs> when you do something of that order, he might say, hmm, that ain't bad right there, that ain't bad. But nothing we do even approximates that because we are not him. Our best works. Now, I know kids don't play outside anymore. <laughs> but we used to play outside. That's, outs, that's when you open the door and you go <laughs> into the front yard. We used to play outside. And mama would make us cakes and pies on the inside. And we thought we were really doing something after it rained to bring her a beautiful mud pie. And you know what she'd do? She put it in a little tin, and she put a little flour on it to make it seem like it was nice, like a candle or something, and she'd leave it there on the counter. It was mud. <laughs> That's what we produce with God in our best efforts. Manufacturing things from the earth that we think are really special. Taking the stuff he's already created and refashioning it into something else, and we think, ooh, look at what I've done. Look at what I've created. I'm an inventor. No, you're just a reassembler. <laughs> That's all you are. Now, I ain't, I ain't mad. I'm not trying to dis, uh, denigrate somebody's great efforts at, at innovation. I'm just saying, in comparison to God, you want to impress him? Mud pie. Mud pie. So your efforts can't. The only thing that you can do to be accepted is surrender. I'm yours. My life was a wreck. Even the good stuff I did wasn't good enough. The bad stuff I did, you know. And the good stuff I did do that wasn't enough, I did on my own and took all the credit for it. God, I'm so messed up that I got to take credit for mud pies. 
That's how messed up I am. That's how my soul is so fractured that I actually have to find my identity and my acceptance and my, my worth in what I've created, which is a mud pie compared to what you've done. So I surrender. There's no way I can fix this. I give you my life. Forgive me for everything I've done, everything that I am, all that I would have been without you. Forgive me. And the redemptive benefit that God gives is overwhelming. It's in abundance. It's not that he just adds a little sprinkle of his forgiveness. He covers you with it. Forgives all of your sin. All the stuff you have done, are doing, and will do. It's all forgiven. And because your good works couldn't get you in, your bad works can't keep you out. He already, he already forgave you for everything that you were, not just what you did. So that after you get right with God, God God's not into paying for stuff and then returning it. He paid a lot for you, a lot, an Im- immeasurable price, meaning that makes you priceless. The value he put on you is beyond estimable worth. Beyond estimable worth. Do you think he's going to give up on you when he got you when you were less than? Most less valuable than you are now? Do you think he's going to quit and, and say return to send him? He paid too much to give up on you now. So simply because you do wrong now doesn't mean you are out. And that doesn't give you a license to do wrong because if you, you consider that something really wrong with you then, something's wrong with your thinking, there's not enough gratefulness on the inside of your soul that reflects back on what you were to want to live any different because you know how much it costs. Something's wrong with you in the way you think. If you use it as a license to do what you want to do, something's wrong with you. And by the grace of God, you can repent of that. Come back to the cross. Salvation is a one-time thing. Repentance and getting right in sanctification is like every second. (laughs) It just doesn't stop. The growth process of you becoming what you need to become does not stop until you breathe your last. You just keep coming to the cross. God, I need help there. Oh, God, I messed up with my kids. I messed up. Oh, I could have been a better, better employee, supervisor, better friend. Lord, help me be better. No matter what you do, it's not big enough for him to say, I'm done with you. He paid too much. He paid too much. He paid too much. He forms this identity by first forgiving you and then bringing you back to factory settings. He restores you. All of you had a phone or computer that got messed up, right? Was corrupted by some outside entity? Or maybe somebody planted something on the inside that you bought and you didn't even know it was a used computer and you, you inherited it? And now you got to restore it back to factory settings. This is what God does after he forgives. He says, I'm going to create you to be what I thought about when I thought about creating you in the beginning. It doesn't mean you're going to have everything you need at that moment to do what you need to do. It just simply means he's now got a clean slate to be able to add all the stuff he wants to, all the programs and apps. I'm going too far in the analogy. I really am. He wants to bring 
downloads to you on a regular basis that allow you the privilege of upgrading. So it restores you to factory settings, and now you've got a clean slate. You can begin to do stuff you never thought about and become what you never could have become on your own. Oh, it's really great, but it would have been just enough if he redeemed me, if he just forgave me. That would have been enough. But no, he says, listen, I'm making you a son and a daughter. I'm bringing you back to what I thought about when I thought about creating you. I'm giving you the place of, 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 of being able to inherit something rather than earn something. You're going to get stuff from me you don't even deserve. You've already gotten salvation. I'm going to give you a whole much more. And now you've got forgiveness. And now I'm going to give you resources to do what you need to do in the earth. I'm going to give you so much information about me. It's going to be great. So he restores us to factory settings. And then he remakes you. Oh, the remaking process is that which allows the Christian, the believer, to become a disciple. Now, in the, in the Bible, there was no distance between those two concepts. If you were a Christian, you were a disciple. That's the way the Bible described it. But in our Western Christianity, you can actually, somehow, we've, we've, we've bifurcated the two. You can actually become a Christian and not be a disciple. I don't know how that is. It should not be. And we as a church believe that they ought to be married and inseparable. That it, when, when you give your heart to Jesus, you choose this. I'm going to follow you forever. What you tell me to do, I'm going to do. What you say, I need to say, I will, I will say. And where you tell me to go, I will go. Whatever it is, I'm your boy, I'm your girl, I'm your, I, I want to I emulate my life after you. I'm going to walk in your footsteps. I'm going to be a disciplined follower of Christ. That's what it means. When you become that, you get, you get put in the process of being remade and reformed. And now nothing about you, as you continue, nothing about you looks anything like what you used to be. And my hope is this. That you allow others to evidence the fact that nothing about you looks anything like what you used to be, rather than you just proclaiming it. Because the grace of God is now evident to other people in how it's worked in your life and your identity has changed. You just aren't the same. May that be your blessing. Yet everybody else looks around and says, that, that's not the same dude. I mean, I know that dude. That, 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 that's not him. That's not him. And even if you are a Christian, the growth process ought to continue to such a degree that whoever knows you from last year looks at you now and says, well, you're different. By the grace of God, you are what you are. It has nothing to do with you making yourself. It has everything to do with you surrendering and allowing him to make you. And then Paul says, and his labor... His work for me didn't prove vain. In that I worked harder than all of them. And talking about all the apostolic men now. <laughs> I imagine when the apostles read the end of this letter, they looked at it and said, huh. <laughs> but God thought so much of it that he took this whole letter with this part and decided to make it a part of his holy writ. His words, kind of like John over in the book of John calling himself the beloved of Jesus. The beloved disciple. That's what John, and he, you're not getting it. John wrote John. <laughs> he called himself the beloved. And everybody said, oh, okay. But Paul has some credibility here. He has some credibility. Paul was not just saying, he worked harder 
in his profession. We preachers, people like me, can begin to think that we've done all our service to God during our working hours. And then when we're not on, on the job, we just people. Because we've, we've, we've thought we've done something really wonderful for God, we've given our lives into service for him. But we're, I, I, I think we're called to be really good Christians when we're not at work. We preachers. Which means all of us are called to be really good Christians when we're not supposed to be in our own mind. This is not a time to evidence my Christianity. I'm supposed to be this. Well, you may not use it as an opportunity to do a Bible study while you are employed at 1.30 in the afternoon and say, let's all take a break. We're going to do this thing right now. But there are ways to evidence who you are and whose you are outside of a demonstrative moment whereby everybody thinks, okay, we know you're a Christian now. It's how you say what you say. It's how you do what you do. It's how you care for people. And, and Paul seemed to make sure that most of his life was centered around this mission, not just his employment. We think he ministered somewhere between 25 and 27 years. That's a pretty short ministry. But then most apostles or Christians didn't minister a long time because you got executed. So he didn't die of old age. He died because he was preaching the gospel. But of that 25 to 27 10 to 15% of it was spent in prison. We have record of two years. And there are other times when he was in prison that we don't know anything about. At least two years. That's a long time to be incarcerated when you're supposed to be a minister of the gospel. And during that time, I imagine he would have, most people would be thinking, Lord, how do I get out of here? I, I have to do ministry. People are waiting for me to hear this. This surely can't be where you want me to be because ministry needs to be out there with the people. But Paul looked at his incarceration as an opportunity to minister. He was there in Philippi and he was thrown in jail with his buddy Silas. And they were put in the dungeon, not just the jail, but the inner jail. And they were clasped with chains and, and, and fastenings while they were in their dungeon. At midnight hour, it says that they began to Praise and worship. Hymns were coming up from that place, and nobody had ever heard hymns come from that place before. God was so impressed with them believing that they were free, though their circumstances did not say so, that they were completely liberated, though nothing about their outward life looked like it. You can be in places out of which you cannot get and do not like, but it should not inhibit your praise, nor your thanksgiving. These people were in the worst place of the worst place. And they were praising God at midnight. God was so impressed, he sent an earthquake so that all of the other prisoners' doors opened. And so Paul and Silas' praise and worship not only benefited them in that their doors were open, it benefited everybody else they didn't even know. Your praise and worship can impact a lot of folks. When you come in here, please do not look at the, pe the people who are doing this wonderful presentation on Sunday morning in song as a warm-up act for Brett. It is an opportunity for you to engage with God in praise and worship 
To love him through song. And the reason we do, I had somebody come and say, why do you sing the same chorus over and over? Because you need it, that's why. But <laughs> I didn't say that. that. I say stuff here that I don't say in person because it sounds good when I preach it. <laughs> well, we do that because the Bible talks about how we should meditate on the word. And in song, this gives us the opportunity to meditate. So we don't have four or five verses with a whole lot of language that you have to memorize over a period of six months before you ever get to us. Or you have to hold a book like this and you cannot express yourself and worship to God with your hands because you're looking down and you're reading theology and you're singing theology, but you're not engaged. We don't have that. Now, I'm not against all of that. I'm just giving you the reason as to why we do what we do. So we have very short verses with very short courses with very easy um, um, melodies that you can pick up. And after you've heard it two or three times, you don't need the words anymore. And you can just do what you need to do. And we do it over and over so that those words can fill your soul, wash over your soul. And now when you come in the next time after you've heard a first song for the, for the first time, you come in next time, you got it. And now you can just burst into praise without even thinking about it. And your mouth is singing without you thinking about grammar but I look around every once in a while and some of y'all are I ain't mad at you I just want you to know you're delaying your deliverance Don't waste these 17 minutes we put into that moment. Those are moments for you to get free and to exercise your freedom that you already walk in. And then you don't know who in the world is supposed to benefit from that which you should be doing that you're not. Question, was Paul on the job? Was he on the job when he was in jail? He was a Christian. But on the job? On the, on the religious mandate of these are the hours that you need to work as a pastor? No, it was midnight. He should be asleep. But he was worshiping. When he says, I worked harder than all y'all, this is what he's saying. I worked it every moment I could. Every moment I could. Peter was in a similar situation. He was in jail, Acts chapter 12. And I love Peter. Peter's an amazing human being. I'll be looking at the back of his head in heaven. He'll be so close to the throne and I'll be so distant. I admire him deeply. But he responded very differently than Paul did in prison. When Peter was in prison, it says that he was there and he was asleep between two guards. Sleep. No praise and worship. No prayer. Sleep. He was so unconscious that it says an angel had to come and hit him to get him up. Generally, that's not the way you want angels to approach you. Literally, it says, the angel struck him and said, get up. He got up. He didn't preach to the two guys who were next to him. He walked out. Freedom was there. And he left. The two guys who were next to him the next morning died. Paul said this. The jailer came who was a warden. And he saw all the doors open. And he was about to kill himself because the penalty for losing a prisoner to escape was being burned at the stake with your own clothes. He said, I'd rather die like this. Took out his sword to kill himself. Paul said, we're still here. 
most of us would have been like Peter as soon as we saw the doors flung open. <laughs> Hallelujah, the Lord that delivered me. <laughs> but nobody else delivered you, but nobody else. Paul stayed in prison because he cared about this jailer. Led him to the Lord. The jailer said, come back to my house. Woke up everybody in his house. Everybody in the house got saved, baptized that same night. And if that wasn't amazing enough, we're talking about a man who's able to say, I worked harder than them all because even when I'm not on the job, I work. I'm a good Christian even when I'm not paid to be. Something happened. It says the next morning, the, the, religion, the, the, the Romans called for Paul and Silas from prison. So, wait, 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 wait. They were just at the jailer's house. They got back to So there had to be a conversation with the jailer that said, listen, I know that if we leave, though you have brought us out, you brought us out of the prison, and you brought us to your house, and we could go ahead and just walk out of the city right now. I know, though, if we leave, you'll die. So we choose to go back to prison to save your life. What an amazing human being. All of us would have bolted. But Paul cared more for others than he did himself. All he did was pick up his cross daily and say, my life does not matter if it doesn't matter to somebody else. My life does not matter if it doesn't matter to somebody else. Effort. He worked hard. And the fruit of it was that every time he worked hard for God, God brought fruit. People got right. Societies were changed. Churches were birthed. Lives were restored. Healings happened. It was outstanding. But he says, it all came as a result of the grace of God. Not the grace. It wasn't me who labored, but the grace of God within me. The grace of God wants to labor within you to do more than you ever could do. And the grace of God wants to help you become more than you ever could become. Surrender. Allow your life to be his and let him live through you every day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and grace. Empower us to be the kind of people who can serve you well.